this is the Fisheries Podcast, a weekly podcast that shares the stories of the amazing people and projects that make up fisheries science. If you haven't already, follow the podcast on social media at Fisheries Pod. If you are the generous sort, you can be like Ben, Janet, Robin, Jody, Garrett, John, and Jerry, who all support the podcast on Patreon. Through Patreon, you are able to support the show with either a recurring or one-time donation, which helps us pay for various parts of the show. If that isn't your thing, you can also purchase Fisheries Pod merch on our Teespring store if you feel inclined, so check it out. My name is Preston Chrisman, and I am a new co-host on the pod recording my first episode. Our guest today is Jason Dahl. Jason is an assistant professor of fisheries and the coordinator of the environmental science and studies programs at Francis Marion University in Florence, South Carolina. Jason is originally from Cambridge City, Indiana, and received his bachelor's in 2001 and master's in 2003 both from Ball State University. Jason returned to Ball State later on and earned his PhD in 2015 before he became a postdoctoral research associate in the Quantitative Fisheries Center at Michigan State University. Jason has had multiple professional positions throughout his career, including a fish assistant fisheries biologist for the Indiana DNR, research associate at Ball State University, fisheries biologist for the Bureau of Water Quality within the Muncie Sanitary District, and owned his own private pond management company. Once Jason received his PhD, he was a visiting professor at Ball State and then an assistant professor of biology at the University of Mount Olive in North Carolina before reaching his current position at Francis Marion University. Jason's research interests are broadly fisheries ecology and quantitative analysis. His colleagues know him for his love of Bayesian inference and all things related to R. In his spare time, he helps maintain three R packages. He can often be found giving workshops to help fisheries biologists use these tools for their everyday management needs, such as the recent fisheries age and growth workshop he gave for the Arizona and New Mexico, New Mexico chapter of the American Fisheries Society. Welcome to the podcast, Jason. Thanks, Preston. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Jason works a lot with us in my position with South Carolina DNR. He's been a great help and sounding board for all things quantitative related, and I'm excited to delve into the interview portion. So here we go. To get us started, how did you first become interested in fish and the aquatic environment? Well, uh, my first first exposure, you know, to the aquatic environment, like most of us, from when I when I was a kid, um, growing up, my earliest memories there was a small creek across the road where we lived at my grandparents' house, and I would spend a lot of time there chasing uh, crayfish, trying to catch creek chubs on really tiny hooks. So you know, I was uh, micro fishing before micro fishing was really cool, but really that's all I could catch. So. <laughs> You know, so, you know, growing up early on, spending a lot of time out, out in creeks, waiting, waiting around, looking at bugs. Uh, and as I got older, really got into fishing. Uh, you know, even even before I had my own vehicle to take myself fishing, if, you know, when, when we go to the uh, local Kmart or Target, uh, you know, I'd spend just as much time at the fishing aisle as I would the toy aisle, right? So, and, you know, my parents didn't fish. Um my uncle fished, but you know, in Florida, then I had an uncle that uh, had some ponds that, that were that were fairly local uh, that I would go to. Uh, but my parents would drop me off. They dropped me off at my uncle's house. I'd spend all day, you know, I'd spend a Friday, a Saturday uh, fishing out there for largemouth, bluegill. It was overloaded with uh, stunted crappie. But you know, you're 13, 14 years old. It doesn't matter what you're catching as long as you're catching something. Uh, you know, in that. That uh, enjoyment of fishing just continued. Um, you know, I saved up all of my allowance, and then I got a job at a local grocery store. 
and bought my first boat uh, before I had a car. And so my dad would pull the boat to, to my uncle's and put that in and let me be out on the lake all day. And once I got my own vehicle, then I would take it around everywhere. Um, you know, my first car was a 89 Chevy Corsica. And of course I put a trailer hitch on it. Um, <laughs> it was a, it's just a small V bottom boat, but it, it did the job, you know, it got me out on the water. Um, and it just, you know, you really cemented the, the love of being on the water and fish, uh, and fishing. Okay. Had a, but had a boat before your first car. I like it. And, you know, I've, there was a short period in between. So I sold a boat before I, uh, when I moved to North Carolina, uh, a couple years ago and in 2018. So there was a one year period that I didn't have a boat and it was the only year that I did not personally own a boat that I could remember in my adult life. And it was a terrible year. <laughs> did you ever have a sort of eureka type moment where you knew that you wanted to pursue a career in fishery science? Or did you just wake up one day to find that you were headed down that track? You know, I, uh, I was, I've been thinking about that and there's really, there was definitely not a eureka moment. Um, I've always, I've always wanted to uh, do something, something related to fish. You know, like most of us, my dream job was becoming a professional bass angler. Um, and then I quickly realized that I wasn't good enough to do that. <laughs> um, and, you know, the it wasn't until I was a sophomore, I think, in college that I realized that this could be an actual career. Uh, when I started Ball State, uh, I knew I knew they had some fish-related courses. I just knew I wanted to take them. I didn't know that that could be turned into a career. Uh, but that that really helped me uh, focus my uh, career outlook. You know, I think before that, it was what most people think. You know, conservation, law enforcement in within the DNR. Uh, you know, if you're growing up, that's automatic. That's what you typically see. You know, when you're out there fishing, so you just put that as the face of that's somebody that's working out in the environment out, uh, out with fish. Uh, but then, you know, as I going through my undergrad quickly realized that there was an actual career that could be made. Um, and then that, so I guess I was, I sort of just fell into it. You know, I just always knew I wanted to do something with fish. So you went directly into grad school to pursue your master's degree immediately after attaining your bachelor's degree. Looking back now, would this be something you would recommend to current undergrad students? So, you know, that's a good question. Uh, everyone has different paths. And I think the best, uh, the best path is what's right for you. And you know, think about your own uh, situation. I'm glad I did. I'm glad I went to get my master's right away. Um, it, it becomes progressively more difficult. If you get out, you get all the, you, you get a family, you get all these uh, uh, extra expenses. It's hard to go back to to get a uh, a degree. The online degrees make it a lot more attainable now. Uh, you know, one of our graduates uh, graduating here in May, he's applying. He applied to Clemson's grad program. So the, you know, the online grad program is going to work um, and and do that. And I believe that's what you did as well, right? So that makes it a, a lot uh, more attainable for working adults to get that. Um, you know, so for me, for going right into, into my master's, it, it was a natural progression, um, especially just staying there at Ball State. And, uh, you know, my first fisheries position was uh, uh, an intern for Ball State. I worked on the, the Lake Michigan Yellow Perch long-term monitoring program. So I started that as a junior and, you know, that was, it was running gill nets, trawling in like Southern Lake Michigan. And so I was already in with the, working with the professors in the department and then sort of stayed on to build my master's. So that worked out well for me. Um, it, if possible, I would, 
I would recommend sticking with it. Uh, but again, it doesn't mean that that's the right decision for you. Uh, I will say that I am glad I did not do my PhD right after my master. Uh, I don't think I was I would have been successful uh, doing doing my PhD. Some some folks are. A lot of people go straight through, get their PhD. I'm glad I waited. That leads us right into the next question. Um, why don't you tell us about some of your early career work in between attaining your master's degree and before going back to pursue your doctorate? Yeah. So right after my master's, I took a, a summer internship, fisheries aid position, they call them in Indiana. Um, and I worked in Northwest Indiana for uh, uh, Bob Robertson and District 1. And so that was, a you know, their first try. My, my expectation is I wanted to work for Indiana DNR. Grew up in Indiana. I had no desire to leave leave Indiana, uh, so I wanted to work as a fisheries biologist for Indi Indiana DNR. So that was the perfect fit. Um, you know, had a great time uh, working working with DNR. Had that uh, worked that job through the summer, and then fortunately they uh, were expanding that year. They they got approval to expand uh, expand their uh, employees, so they're hiring. I think four or five new assistant biologist positions for all the to add to all the districts. Uh, so that, I was already with the state, applied, you know, gave me sort of that in, inside connection. Uh, so then I had my first uh, professional job as an assistant fisheries biologist in southwest Indiana, uh, worked for Dan Carnahan. Uh, so one of the things that I, you know, that I've been throughout my career, uh, I've been fortunate to have really good mentors. And both of those two supervisors early on were outstanding, uh, really helpful in uh, uh, developing my fisheries skills. Um, so I worked, worked for, worked for Dan, um, about two and a half, three years. And, and then the research biologist position at like, uh, at Ball State came open, um, uh, that was running the long-term yellow perch monitoring program on Lake Michigan, which I always enjoyed, uh, really enjoyed my time in, uh, on the, on the lake. So, uh, I went back, uh, went back to Ball State, and uh, worked there for a couple of years. You know, we we had graduate students that I would take up during the during the summer. Uh, pretty intensive sampling program, three months. We were up there pretty much those full three months, uh, trawling, setting gill nets, um, and then the downtime. You know, processing apercles. We took so many apercles, uh, aging growth, uh, and then writing the report. Uh, I enjoyed doing that, but it was soft money. It was grant funded money, and I was beginning to have some concerns about. You know, is that going to be a long term, uh, a long term position? Uh, so then, uh, then I uh, applied for the fisheries biologist position for the uh, Bureau of Water Quality at the Muncie Sanitary District, and so it's one of very few um, sanitary districts that have paid fisheries biologists in the state. Uh, Elkhart is uh, El Elkhart, Indiana is another one, and there might be one or two more out west. Uh, but I was responsible for doing all the fishery surveys to ensure that the uh, wastewater treatment plant was not impairing the biological community, the fish community. So the BWQ was tasked with ensuring that it was the uh, the receiving river of the Muncie Sanitary District was meeting the uh, fishable, swimmable, drinkable uh, goals of the Clean Water Act. And so there's another biologist that uh, that did a macroinvertebrate biologist that surveyed the uh, invertebrate, macroinvertebrates, and mussels. As I said, I, I was uh, responsible for all the fishery samples. Um, so we did backpack, tote barge, boat electrofishing, and you know our bread and butter was IBIs, uh, index of biotic integrities. We did QHEIs, and then I did some other stuff. Um, but our main goal, main purpose, was to calculate those uh, indices for. 
uh, for public consumption, uh, which IBIs are great for that. It boils the community down to one number, you know, poor to excellent, and it's easy, uh, easy way to describe the health of the uh, of that aquatic system to the public. Um, and then within that time frame, um, my original undergrad professor, Dr. Tom McComish, uh, he had retired when I before I started graduate school. Uh, but he had a, a business called Fish Pro, private pond management business. Uh, heard he was selling it. So I reached out to him, um, thought it would be, you know, met with him and to figure out what the small business was about. And it was stocking fish, uh, installing, maintaining aerators, fountains, selling herbicides, treating aquatic vegetation for, for private pond owners. Um, so I purchased that business from him and I really enjoyed doing that. Uh, my, my thought was, you know, this is going to be a way that, that I can retire early. You know, I loved what I was doing at the BWQ, but you know, once you get 60 years old, do you really, am I going to be physically able to, uh, wade in streams, pulling a tote barge? All right. So, so my long-term plans was, you know, this is going to be this potential early retirement gig that I could have. I uh, really enjoyed doing that. It was real successful. Uh, but then the uh, uh, PhD program started uh, at Ball State. Uh, so I won't get too much into that now. I think we may have, may, that may come up here in a little bit. But uh, so I've, uh, between my master's and PhD program, you know, I was able to do a lot of different things uh, and get experiences in a lot of different, uh, uh, a lot of different ecosystems and a lot of different experiences that have helped, uh, helped me post, uh, post PhD, particularly in this uh, environmental science program. Yeah, that sounds great. You kind of checked all the boxes. Um, so you mentioned that the PhD program started up at Ball State. Mm -hmm. um, what within you led you to want to go back to school to pursue your PhD? And then at that time, did you know that you wanted to end up in academia when you made that decision? So no, I did not have any intentions of being in academia. Um, you know, I when I heard that program was was starting, I thought, man, this could be my an opportunity to do research for, you know, Fish and Wildlife Service, NOAA, uh, some larger, larger agency, maybe work at a co-op. You know, that was sort of my dream was to work at a co-op unit uh, where they had access to all the academic uh, institutions, but they were focused on research. That's really what I enjoyed. And so I started, started the PhD program. It was in environmental science. Uh, so there was uh, classes in biology, chemistry, and uh, geology. So we had to take two classes in each, but then we could focus on whichever uh, department, whichever field we wanted to. And so mine was fisheries. Um, and going into it, it was all, my mind was research focused. Uh, and but part of the program was we had to teach. Uh, we had to teach something before to to fulfill the, the requirements of the degree. And Tom, uh, Tom Lauer, my mentor, you know, he knew I did not have any expectations of teaching. So they the department allowed me to develop a, a graduate level statistics class. You know, by then my statistical analysis was uh, in full swing. My love of statistics was in full swing. Um, and uh, so they let me develop a, a class just uh, devoted towards some uh, general statistical analysis that's important for most biologists, like generalized linear models. Um, but then work with each of the individual graduate students on identifying the proper statistical analysis for their thesis. Um, little did I know I would thoroughly enjoy that experience. Um, so they let me teach that I, I wanted to teach it again. So I taught taught it the next semester. Absolutely loved it as well. Um, and then I thought thought to myself, well, maybe this is something that I really want to do. Uh, I reached out to the department chair to see if there's an undergraduate class that I could teach. And 
fortunately, the, the professor that normally taught their biostats class was going to be on sabbatical. They had a need. They weren't going to offer biostats, but I told them, can I do it? I won't. I'll just do it for free. Uh, they paid me a small stipend. I just wanted it for the experience. Uh, and again, I thoroughly, I really enjoyed doing that. And I, I think after the undergraduate biostats class is when I really knew that that's what I wanted to do. Um, and um, after, right after getting my PhD, I stayed on as a visiting assistant professor. Um, they, uh, again, just to expand uh, my experiences in teaching. Um, so I had, I taught intro, introductory biology, uh, the organismal introbiology, uh, as well as biostats for each for the fall and the spring. Um, so yeah, it was, it was one of those things I never anticipated uh, enjoying teaching. You know, I'd always, in all of my previous positions, uh, with the exception of being a summer aide, I've always worked with students, right? We always, as biologists, you always have summer interns, and I've always really enjoyed that. At the BWQ, one of the things I would require with all of our interns, we had three each summer. They each had to come up with their own project, right? So with the expectation that they would present it as a poster at Ball State at their undergraduate research symposium. Uh, so, you know, regard outside of just teaching, I'd always enjoyed working with students, helping them develop their own interests and uh, pursue their own uh, their own goals. So it was sort of a natural progression, but it's just something I never thought that I would really enjoy doing. Well, it obviously seems like it's worked out for the best. Um, you mentioned your strong background and interest in quantitative analysis. Uh, has that interest always been present in your career or, or what has contributed to this, this strong quantitative background? Yeah. So after after my master's, um, I do not recall feeling very comfortable with statistics. I hated it. Um, as most people, you know, early on, it's not a, it was not something fun that I not something that I would enjoy doing. Um, but then once I got a job, you know, I needed to use statistics. Um, you know, definitely after my undergraduate biostats course, I did not feel comfortable that I knew what a t-test was. Um, I took a couple stats classes, a master's program. It was in the educational psychology program. Uh, but again, I still didn't feel real comfortable. Uh, but as uh, as I moved from job to job, I was doing, being exposed to more and more statistical analysis. And then that's when uh, I started getting up to the hump to where I started understanding it a little bit better. And then it became more and more interesting to me. As I, as I learned more, I had more questions. I had more interest into learning more about statistical analysis. Um, and, you know, it's continued, that's continued on throughout my career. Uh, you know, the, um, my transition, uh, well, so, you know, we have frequentist and Bayesian statistics. I'll bring Bayes into the conversation real briefly. Um, so frequentist statistics, what we are typically taught in, in our statistics classes, it's uh, hypothesis testing, non-hypothesis statistical testing, and probabilities based on long-run frequencies. And that never really made sense to me. You know, eventually I started to understand it, sort of. Um I came to learn how to apply it, but it, and I think that was one of the thing, one of the things that turned me off early on on statistics. It just doesn't make sense the definition what p values actually rec uh, represent. Uh, and it wasn't until I was with the Bureau of Water Quality and uh, I was uh, doing a depletion survey of smallmouth bass. White River is pretty wide. We had block nets, uh, but I couldn't get my catches to decline. Uh, after I spent all summer with all my students, we spent several weeks uh, collecting this data. The traditional depletion estimators require your catches to deplete. Well, they weren't depleting, so I was stuck. Uh, and I really hated that I had this data set that I spent all this time, but I couldn't do anything with. I couldn't estimate their population, their population size. And this was before unmar the unmarked package in R, before end mixture models were were popular. They 
they may have been, I can't remember when they were first published, but at any rate, what everyone was using was uh, these depletion me methods. Uh, the, the microfish program is what most fisheries biologists that are probably familiar with. And, but that, re again, required those de catches to deplete. I found one paper um, in Canadian Journal of uh, Fisheries Aquatic Sciences that de developed this method of estimating population sizes from repeated catches when the catches didn't de deplete. And they used Bayesian inference. And I looked at it and I had no clue what was going on. So I threw it, you know, I just skipped over it. Months go by, I still didn't have a solution. So I picked it back up and I think I've got to figure this out. Um, and months and months, it took me a while to really understand what was going or just to start to understand what was going on. But once I did, the Bayesian definition of probability really, it was an awakening period. That was when I had the eureka moment, I think. Uh, it just made sense. You know, the uh, the Bayesian probability is, is describes our degree of belief about a parameter. <clears throat> allows us to bring in some prior information, some out, outside information um, that can help guide us so we can use what's what's been established, we collect some new data and adjust our uh, belief, adjust our probability about uh, some some parameter, some something of interest. Uh, and you know that was in 2012, 2011, 2012 somewhere through there. Um, and then it was just down a rabbit hole. Um, you know I drank the Kool-Aid. Um, I've, I've been told it was it's a cult, uh, the Bayesian Bayesian world's a cult. It probably is. Um, I'm definitely in it. Um, you know, I, I teach biostats right now and I, I we do teach uh, null hypothesis statistical testing. I do it un, from an unbiased perspective because that's what most people are using. So regardless, our students need to understand that in, when they're reading these journal articles. Uh, I do introduce Bayesian inference at the end um, because if you're going to grad school now, you're going to need to know, at least be exposed. You're not going to need to know about Bayesian inference, but more, more and more grad programs are integrating Bayesian inference uh, within their uh, for their students, um, so it's I spend a week um, just introducing them introducing them to Bayesian statistics, um, and you know it, it was I'm mostly largely self taught. Um, you know, even during my PhD program, um, I took a multivariate statistics class. I was, I was already using multivariate analysis for a variety of things. Um, it was helpful in learning some of the nuances that I had missed, um, uh, but primarily self taught. Um, it, and it really, I, I went to a seminar with Dr. John Kretzky. He's a cognitive psychologist from IU. He was at, uh, I can't remember where this was at. Uh, it was outside of Indianapolis. Uh, went to a workshop of his, trying to, mostly wanting to see if what I was teach, trying to teach myself made sense. And it did, you know, so some of the stuff that I had picked up reading his books, uh, reading his articles. Uh, and then that just kept me going down down the rabbit hole, and I haven't. Nearly everything I do now, uh, from my own statistical analysis, is from a Bayesian perspective. Um, there are sometimes that it doesn't make sense to use frequentist frequentist analysis, and I'm not against doing that. I'm more open to doing frequentist than once I began uh, uh, down that Bayesian hole. I was very against anything NHS TMP values, but now there's a place for them. Um, they're not wrong. It just, as long as they're interpreted correctly. Oh, that rolls right into our next question. So you have your strong quantitative background and you've mentioned in your bio that you have willingly chosen to maintain three R packages. Um, so if you could please tell us about those three packages, why they are important to fisheries professionals, and then what led you to pursue this uh, particular interest? 
Sure. Yeah. So I've I've always been supportive of open source software uh, for many years. You know, LibreOffice, QGIS, uh, Inkscape. You know, virtually all the software I use is open source. Uh, my personal computers are Linux. Uh, work computers are Windows. This makes it easier. You know, through grad school, I was a Linux person. I'd had Ubuntu on my uh, school computers. Um, so once now that, you know, I got to a point to where, you know, I, I wanted to contribute to that open source community. Uh, and I'd known Derek, uh, Derek Ogle for, for many years. He he developed these uh, these suite of packages that are used broadly in fishery science. Um, and so I reached out to him about three years ago and uh, asked if he needed help. Uh, and he said, absolutely. And and as a matter of fact, he was getting ready to retire from teaching and he didn't want to get completely away from the FSA suite of packages. Um, but he wanted he wanted to come up with some way of ensuring that it would continue to grow and be continue to be maintained. Um, so he's still a part of the uh, part of the group. Um, you know, he's still active within maintaining and developing the, these packages. Um, but my so my role is, is to work with him, trying to learn the 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 back end of package development um you know so it's it's a different beast going from using using r to develop r packages because you know there you have to try to write the code in a way that you're going you're catching user mistakes that's the hardest thing uh, trying to catch trying to come up with uh what inputs might be an error so you can tell the user hey this this data is not formatting correctly or something you know some flag to help the user um uh, clean up clean up their data and make it more uh, uh, make it cleaner for the analysis. Um, so, you know, most of my work is, uh, when, when people email us for questions, um, Derek or I, whichever, Derek's really quick now, <laughs> but whoever gets to it first, you know, we respond to try and help those, help those folks with their errors or, um, find a solution for what they're doing. You know, some of the, some of the issues we have is just with dirty data. Uh, if your data is messy, it doesn't matter. There's nothing you can do with it, like, but we try to, point them in the direction to make best sense out of their data if there is something, some issues with it. Um, and, you know, beyond that, uh, you know, I give workshops. I love giving workshops. Um, uh, the That helps me understand how people are using it uh, a little bit better. Um, and then also how, how it can be improved for other users. Um, so it's, uh, you know, just trying to ensure that these tools get used and used to their fullest, uh, fullest ability. Well, as someone who uses the FSA package routinely, I applaud you guys for your efforts in that. So you've been hired by Francis Marion University in the Freshwater Ecology Center. Please tell us about the creation of this new project and what role you've played in that, uh, what degrees and some typical courses that are being offered under the program that prospective students could be expected to take. Sure. Uh, so the uh, the Freshwater Ecology Center was uh, one of the reasons why they hired me. Um, the President Carter at FMU had a vision of uh, of developing resources in a center that could address water quality issues within the PD region. Uh, so there's if we think about all the universities, there there's several state there's se several universities in South Carolina, but none of them are really associated and focused on on the PD. Um, so he tasked the biology department with developing this program. And part of that came um, a couple new buildings, uh, some new property, um, and some new equipment, which is what won me over. Um, you know, so uh, so with with this, uh, they were given two new hires, a fisheries position and a water quality slash water resource position. And they wanted to hire uh, the fisheries person first. Um, so 
Yeah, so I was brought on in 20, 2019, and they were they had just broken ground uh, or getting ready to break ground on the property. Um, they the, it's a hundred a little over one hundred and fifty acres of uh, of wetlands. There's a swamp that that um, makes up a major part of the area. Um, some wooded areas and a 20 acre lake. And the vision was going to have two buildings on the lake, one uh, a teaching research facility, one a conference center. And the teaching research facility, we're going to be offering some classes out there, which we we started offering classes in uh, 20, 2022, I believe, the fall of 2022. Um, and um, so again, they brought me on to help uh, address some of the fisheries issues um, and assist work with uh, DNR folks uh, with fisheries issues. And you know, one of the first things that I did uh, when I came here was meet with Jason and Bob uh, to talk about some of the uh, some of the fisheries problems, fisheries issues that are that are going on, and what where we could help out. Um, I might get into some of the research here in a little bit, so I won't go too much on that right now. Um, but so you know, back on the uh, education front, um, you know, they they also wanted me to expand our course offerings in fisheries management, ichthyology. With both of those of now, uh, fisheries management's been offered a couple times. Ichthyology is going to be offered for the first time in the spring, and it's also they were also classes to uh, support these two new degrees. Uh, one is a bachelor's of science in environmental BS in environmental science and a BA in uh, environmental studies, and so the environmental science program uh, degree focuses more on individuals that all want to work out in the field and figure out what's what are some of these environmental environmental issues what are the air water soil quality issues that we're facing and what's causing them um, so that degree is uh, heavily science-based there's an environmental science core includes intro to environmental science intro to sustainability uh, water resources class uh, political uh, political science class uh, environmental law um, then there's a biology core. Students will take intro organismal cell biology, conservation biology, and then a couple electives uh, that can be any organismal or any ecology class that they that they want to choose within biology. And then the interdisciplinary block uh, is where uh, they get exposed to a lot of different uh, a lot of different areas. Uh, they're required to take a sociology class, a geography class, technical writing, uh, an economics, environmental economics class, uh, political science, and and then. So it's a really uh, well-rounded interdisciplinary degree, but within that, um, you know, it's still it can still be flexible. Um, you know, I think students coming through our degree could meet all the requirements for AFS certification if they choose. I had to take another class, but you know, when I was getting my bachelor's, I was short. Uh, fortunately, they did not require the um, uh, human dimensions portion of for for AFS certification, so I was grandfathered in, um, but. You know, now my I would have had to have taken an extra class, but you know we build some of those those human dimensions within the degree. Um, the environmental studies, uh, there's not uh, not much uh, science within it. There are some. They're going to still take some in the introductory science courses, uh, but there's more classes in sociology, political science. Uh, they have to take environmental ethics class. Still going to take technical writing, but those folks are going to be the ones that are more advocacy driven, right? They're going to be working. We expect them uh, to pursue careers in politics, working for nonprofits, you know, uh, uh, trying to develop uh, legislation and, and strategies for addressing the problems that the environmental scientists are telling us we need to fix, right? So it come at, comes out at, at both directions. Um, and we've gone, we're up to 
20, uh, so this is the second full year of the program. We're up to 28 students enrolled. Um, that doesn't include all the minors. So we have um, minors that are uh, students that can take a minor in environmental science. Um, and so we expect that to continue to build. It seems to be a popular uh, a popular program and environmental issues, environmental concerns are just going to get more and more uh, important. And these career career trajectories, career options within environmental science are just gonna continue to be uh, uh, more and more numerous uh, as we deal with climate change and all kinds of other stuff. Um, and then in the uh, in the near future, we're starting a new forestry program that's going to be working alongside uh, environmental science, where we'll have some shared classes that that will count towards each degree. Um, it'll be the second uh, certified forestry program in the state. And with that, we're getting another new building. Uh, we're just waiting for uh, the new uh, business and education building to be finished. And they're going to break ground uh, for this new environmental science slash forestry uh, forestry building. Uh, so there's uh, lots of things on the horizon uh, for FMU, and I'm excited to be to be a part of that and help help this environmental science program grow and put out some graduates uh, for for South Carolina. There is an intern partnership between Francis Marion and South Carolina Department of Natural Resources. Uh, would you mind telling us about that? Yeah, so it's been a really successful program that we uh, uh, very much appreciate South Carolina DNR working with us for the uh, with this. Um, it's an opportunity that provides our students uh, the internships with you guys, with the professionals out in the field. FMU funds the salary, so we pay our we pay two students to work uh, seven weeks and work a full week with you, and the times are really flexible. Uh, we have one that's placed with our uh, in our Florence office, which uh, you've been out. I think you've been out with some of our uh, interns and in or some of our students in the past. Um, and so that's local, based locally at uh, Florence. And then our other one is uh, sent down to Bono uh, to work with Diadromus Fisheries crew. Um, but this is, so yeah, we've been doing it for uh, three years. Um, so we just, uh, we're going to be having our uh, interviews coming up in February. Uh, so we got approval to do it again this next year. Um, so as long as that money is available through the university, we're going to continue to do that. It gets our students uh, some really good experience um, and helps, helps them uh, figure out what they want to do uh, as a career. I'd be interested to know what sorts of feedback you've gotten from students that have completed the intern program. They they absolutely love it. Um, you know, some of them were at least one of them was kind of on the fence on what they wanted to do. They knew they wanted to do something outside. They weren't sure if it was going to be fisheries or wildlife. And then after that, they're dead set. They're definitely doing something in fisheries. Um, so it really, it cements their um, uh, cements their career outlook. Um, and you know, couldn't ask for better biologists um, to have working with our students. Um, they they enjoy working with everyone. Uh, you, Jason, uh, uh, everyone that they worked with, they really enjoy uh, enjoy the experience. Well, glad we haven't scared too many of them off. Nope. <laughs> what sorts of fisheries projects are you currently working on? Yeah, so uh, have several uh, several ongoing projects. Uh, most of them are student led. So you know, my, our institution is a primarily undergraduate institution. Um, so there's a lot of he heavy emphasis on uh, getting undergraduates involved in research. So pretty much everything I do has some level of um, uh, undergrad driven project. Uh, I'd say probably one of the uh, uh, 
one of the ongoing projects is working with striped bass in the PD River. Um, so when when I interviewed at FMU in 2018, uh, part of my slide, you know, part of my interview presentation was what kind of research would I would be doing down here. And so I did some research to see what kind of fisheries issues are going on. And I noticed uh, when I look at South Carolina, uh, I did some striped bass work as, during my uh, PhD. So I had an interest in striped bass already. Those landlocked stripers up in Indiana. <clears throat> And there was, it seemed to be a lot of effort spent on stripers in around Charleston, the Ace Basin, Savannah River. Um, there was some work, they did some genetic work in the PD River, uh, striped bass fishery, but beyond that, there wasn't much that was available. So I thought this would be a perfect opportunity if, uh, uh, as, a, as a potential, uh, potential uh, research project moving forward. And then when I met with uh, Jason and Bob, you know, I didn't the the question was to them, you know, what kind of uh, fisheries issues are you working on? What can, where can we help out? And Jason brought up striped bass. They were starting to restock, starting to stock the stripers in, in the PD in 2019. And I thought, this is perfect. I already had an interest. He has an interest. It'll be a great thing. Um, so some of the projects that we've uh, been working on is primarily understanding movement of stripers in the PD. Um, so we've had uh, some tracking studies. There was a tracking study by Jim Bulick uh, years ago where he tagged 12 uh, adults in the PD. And the purpose was to try and give, uh, get an idea of where they're congregating for uh, spring electrofishing to start building a data set of uh, population trends or abundance trends. And uh, so one of the first things I did was look at those data and did some uh, movement analysis to see if I could figure out what um, uh, what are their general migration patterns like, their seasonal movement patterns, uh, what those are like. Um, with only 12 fish, I wasn't able to do a whole lot with it. Um, it's upcoming. We just got accepted in Journal of Fish and Wildlife Management, so it should be coming out here in a few months. Um, uh, but basically, we found that some fish did a seasonal, predictable seasonal movement for spawning. So we had a resting area down at the lower river, Winyah Bay, and then a spawning migration in the spring. They'd go up, up river, they would spawn, they would hang out somewhere in the summer, presumably some cool water creeks. That's one of the things I would love to figure out, put a bunch of temperature loggers and see what are these thermal refuges, because I think that's one of the limiting factors for coastal stripers in the southeast. We're limited, it gets to, it gets hot down here. They're adapted to this area, so they can, some, some uh, literature shown that our, the southeastern stripers can tolerate a little bit warmer water than the north northern uh, migratory stocks. But nevertheless, uh, they need some cooler water, particularly in the summer. It gets in the upper 80s. That can be lethal for them. Um, but then, you know, you have we have these small creeks. When they get deforested, even though they're, um, they're primarily groundwater fed, if you don't have that overhanging vegetation, heats up really quickly. So I'd love to figure out uh, how much thermal refuges are available for, for these stripers. But so they move up in the spring, the spawn, then they go somewhere in the summer, the adults, they'll find some cool, some cool water areas, refuges. And then as the temperature cools down, some of them would move down to Winyah Bay. Uh, and then they hang out at that salt, fresh dividing line. Um, and some of them, we had a couple that didn't make any spawning migrations. They were large enough. They should have been uh, mature. They never made any spawning migrations. Uh, we had a couple that just disappeared during the spring. Um, the hydroacoustic receivers in South Carolina are very thorough. Uh, a lot of them. I don't know how many. There's 80, 75, 80 just in the PD River. Um, and if it wasn't for Bill and his crew, we couldn't do any of this. I'm hugely appreciative of his crew. Um and, you know, a couple of them, they left during the summer, have no clue where they went to. Um, you know, so they either just stayed in one location and just weren't moving around or they somehow made it to 
uh, another river. And just, I, I find it hard to believe that they went too far and didn't get noticed. But um, then we had one fish that migrated along the intracoastal waterway that each uh, each winter would travel about 50 river kilometers up to ICW, uh, up to the North Carolina border. And we now, we always suspected that there was an overwintering population there. And there's a huge overwintering, overwintering population in ICW near uh, Little River Inlet. And that's one of the other things that we're interested in now is trying to understand where these fish are coming from. Um, because it's about the same, Little River is about the same distance from the Cape Fear as it is from um, the PD River. And there's a lot of them there. Are they all PD River fish? We don't know yet. Um, and so basically we had a mix of these these adult movements just with 12 fish. Um, one of my future wishlist projects is to do to to do a much larger project on these adult movement patterns. Um, and then uh, in 20, uh, 2021, we, uh, Jason and I both got some hyperacoustic tags to tag juveniles and so the hatchery system held held the stripers a little bit longer, grew them up to about 10 inches, and we stocked 30, uh, 30 of them with hydroacoustic tags to figure out where these, what's their first year movement like? Where are some of this nur these nursery areas? Because they're not going to be going up to spawn, so what's going to happen to them? Um, but as soon as they were stocked, they all went down to Winya Bay, and, and they... Uh, I haven't quite matched it up with, you know, the salinity. There's, I don't have all the salinity information to see what, what it's like, as it's, it can change dramatically when you obey, depending on how much rain we get. Um, but they definitely, as soon as they are stocked, they moved down into the Georgetown, Georgetown, Georgetown area, um, and just stayed there and throughout, throughout the, uh, the spring into the summer. And then once the fall hit, it seemed like they tended to move out into some of the tributaries, some of the rivers down there. But then the 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 batteries died. They were only good good for a year. Um, but nevertheless, gave us you know it, it cemented the the notion that Winyaw Bay, Upper Winyaw Bay, is a, a major nursery area for for these juvenile stripers. Um, so now they're stocking them closer to that because if they're going to go down there. Why stock them way up in the PD? Um, so uh, striped bass fish, uh, fishery, the striped bass uh, work. I'll conti hope we'll continue working with Jason on that to try and understand uh, understand their population dynamics and all trying to rebuild this population um, and doing some additional genetics work um, uh, to try and you know we take fin clips when I'm out angling. I take fin clips from everything. Um, I've got 70, 78 fin clips from last year. I'm hoping to get about 200 this year. Um, eventually we'll get those analyzed to see where they're from. You know, the Tanya, uh, uh, the Marine Research Institute, they can tell us where these fish, if they were spawned or if they were hatchery fish, where they were, hatch where they were spawned at, who their parents were. Um, so some other, uh, uh, I guess I'll give you a brief overview of some of the other projects where I'm in the working with a couple of folks on a long nose gar uh, shape variation project uh, with Steve Jackman at Wright State University, uh, Solomon David at Minnesota, and then a PhD student down at Louisiana State, Dan Sinopoli. Um, so last year, or two summers ago, um, so as I mentioned, you know, we're all, all of, I try to have student led projects and student developed projects. Um, we were working on one, uh, summer of 2022. I had Ian Fisher out with me and he was just helping out on some existing projects. And I said, if something throughout the summer, if something sparks your interest, we'll build a project off of that next summer. He was attracted to Gar. He's a big angler. He he's always liked Gar. And he said, I wonder if, if, if their snouts are different. You know, the literature shows that male snouts are a little bit short. Long as Gar snouts are a little bit shorter. Females are a little bit long, longer. And I thought, well, why don't we just build a project around that? So beyond just measuring the snout, we did uh, geometric morphometrics, which is essentially putting points along the perimeter of the fish 
and it does some analysis to look at some fine scale shape move, shape variation. And we wanted to see if there were differences in shape upstream, down, middle, and downstream, and see if there's any potential uh, local adaptations for different flow regimes. Because fish very plastic, um, fish in really high turbulent water of the same species will be a little bit more torpedo shaped and more uh, in slower moving bodies of water. They become more uh, rotund. So we wanted to assess that and wanted to look at. Um, uh, differences among sex and then difference shape differences among sex and then differences shape differences of, uh, across different lengths. And Steve Jackman, he's done a lot of work with geometric morphometrics and I've collaborated with him on a lot of projects in the past. So that's how he, he was brought into the project. And uh, Solomon David, he runs the GAR lab. If anyone knows anything about uh, non-game fish, I'm sure they've heard of him. So we brought him on and that's going to looks. this has been a really fun project to work on. I think we have some interesting questions that we can continue moving forward. So that's a project that's ongoing. Ian's done. He graduated in December, uh, but we're going to finish up this project and uh, maybe expand that broadly more re or, uh, across their range uh, here at some point. Um, I've got some other projects. I'm, you know, I, I mentioned that I uh, have a history in, in the Great Lakes. Um, I'm starting to wind down my involvement up there, but we're finishing up a project looking at fisheries-induced evolution in Yellow Perch. Um, so part of this long-term uh, long monitoring program at Ball State was collecting scales and uh, perkles from Yellow Perch. And so I left and that program was being phased out. Uh, the DNR was going to start doing their own sampling and uh, they were hiring new new folks and they were going to do it in-house. And nobody wanted this huge collection of yellow perch scales. So I took it. I had a, I have scales dating back to 1977. Um, and Zach Feiner, uh, he did his PhD at Purdue and looked at this idea of fisheries-induced evolution in the Great Lakes broadly. And he looked at really broad scale changes, decadal changes in all the Great Lakes and saw some uh, uh, some signal that there was some potential fisheries-induced evolution, meaning specifically uh, yellow perch during high commercial harvest in the 70s and the 80s, um, their maturation rates were really, really low. Like males were maturing at age one, females were maturing at age two. Uh, but they had to, if they were going to reproduce, if they waited, they were going to get harvested, right? Commercial fishing was phased out in the mid-90s, and there was a rapid shift to aging at older older ages, old, older lengths. So males are now uh, maturing at age two, females are maturing at age four. So now they're waiting until they're much larger to become mature. You know, that presumably would lead to a rebound in the fishery. The yellow perch fishery has collapsed in the 80s and it has not rebounded. But if the fish are, are maturing later, right, they're gonna have more eggs. Presumably that should help rebuild the population. That has not. Uh, but nevertheless, those are we were looking at, he looked at phenotypic traits. Uh, so we wanted to look at rather than a decadal change, we wanted to do a deep dive into the uh, Southern Lake Michigan data set and look at annual changes using this analysis called probabilistic maturation norms, which briefly, it's just a, a measure of the tendency for fish to mature at a given length and age. And applied to a robust data set can give you an indication if it is a phenotypic change or if it's a genetic change. And what we're noticing from the from the morphology or from the uh, gross morph uh, morphological measurements that it seems to be a genetic change. Um, so that brought on uh, uh, Purdue University. Uh, so that brought on Mark Christie at Purdue, who's a fisheries geneticist, um, and he's taking our scales. So I, he's, I've sent him a whole bunch of scales dating back to the 70s, and they're able to map the genome, uh, pull the genetic information from those old archive scales. And he's looking to see, okay, the uh, maturation rate suggests it's a genetic change. 
was there actually genetic change in the population? It has not been established and shown in any freshwater uh, populations that I'm aware of, mostly because you need a large data set. It's been shown in some of the highly exploited marine fisheries. Um, so this is really exciting to see that we just, we submitted our uh, paper for the modeling uh, about a month ago. Uh, Mark's still working on the genetic analysis. So that's a really cool project for me to end my uh, involvement in um, in the Great Lakes. Uh, and then sort of lastly, I do, I, I work a lot with North Carolina Wildlife Resource Commission. I've been helping out with some spot fin chub surveys. You know, wanna, I, I really enjoy game fish. I really enjoy those understanding exploited fisheries population dynamics. Um, but that doesn't mean, yeah, I still, I also enjoy some of these non-game species to understand, you know, how their populations differ and what's making them tick. Um, so I've been working with uh, Luke Edgerson on some population estimates of spot fin chubs are an endemic species in Western North Carolina, only found in a couple of rivers. They're trying to uh, uh, reestablish them in other rivers, other streams. Um, so that's been a cool project working with him. Get to do some snorkel surveys um, when it's warm. Uh, but in July and August in the mountains of North Carolina, it's still cold. So I wear a seven millimeter uh, wetsuit and I should be moving to a dry suit because I still get cold. <laughs> All right, so outside of teaching all of those research projects and maintaining three R packages, what are your hobbies outside of work? Fishing. Um, you know, I, as most of us, I go fishing as much as I can. I try to go each week, uh, each weekend, going tomorrow, trying to take some advantage of this time off around the holidays. Um, you know, so most of my resources are sunk into fishing. Um, you know, the moving down here near the, the coast, you know, I grew up largemouth bass fishing in Indiana reservoirs smallmouth fishing in Indiana streams. Uh, but now I don't think I can ever move away from the coast ever again. Um, you know, we have the coastal stripers, which you target them just like you target largemouth bass. Super fun to catch. Um, and, you know, I love drum fishing, uh, going for fishing for drum, red drum, the bull drums, the delicious, the, you know, I never, I never used to eat much fish until I moved to the coast. It just tastes better when you catch something fresh from salt water and able to cook it that night or the next day. Um, so you name it, I'm targeting something, uh, on the coast at any given, any given weekend. Um, but beyond that, my interests are, I do have one interest other than fish, um, uh, Star Wars, uh, you know, I'm, uh, always been a huge Star Wars fan that rules a lot of my, uh, non, uh, non fish and non stats life. Um, you know, the, uh, last year I started, did my first cosplaying, um, at, Raleigh Galaxy Con. Uh, two of my friends uh, I used to work with at the University of Mount Olive. We dressed up as Jedi uh, for Galaxy Con, so that was super fun. Um, All right, we're winding down into our regular interview portion. I think this will be the last question, and I plan to ask this question of every guest I interview. Do you have any nuggets of advice for high school or undergrad students that are interested in pursuing a career in fishery science or for folks that are already in the early stages of their career? Uh, say if you could go back in time and tell a 16, 18 or 22 year old or whatever age, Jason, what advice would you want him to hear? Yeah. So I think broadly to about any, any student, whether they're high school or undergrad is follow your passions, find out what you really enjoy doing and do that. Um, you know, I, I've had some biology majors that come through that they're just not enjoying it and they keep hammering down. Like if you're not enjoying this, go do something that you enjoy. Um, you know, that's why you come to college is to uh, pick up some new knowledge, figure out what you're going to enjoy the rest of your life. Um, there's nothing, you know, there's nothing worse than being in a, a job that you're going to hate the rest of your life. Um, so follow your passions. Don't follow the money. Uh, the money will come. Um, you know, there's a lot to say about 
enjoying, uh, looking forward to going into work every day. I've been fortunate. I have never had a day that I have not enjoyed going in. Um, and I think most fisheries biologists could say that. Um, I doubt any of them would say that they haven't. There might be some things that you don't particularly enjoy, but in general, uh, uh, follow your passions, uh, find a career that interests you. Um, and then also find good mentors. Uh, you know, you can't, uh, you can't, it, it's very helpful to have mentors that are going to help you along. Um, not to say that they're going to open the, they're going to do it for you. They're going to help you open the door. Um, and you find good mentors and they're going to be with you for throughout your career. I still stay in contact with all of my mentors. Uh, that have been that have been helpful, and then new ones pop up along the way. I mean, you're never too old to have uh, have have good mentors. Um, specific to fisheries, something that I wished I would have done more as an undergrad. Um, you know, I was a member of the uh, AFS student group at Ball State. We'd go to meetings, but I was not. I, I'm an introvert, um, so I was not one to go out and talk to biologists. Uh, I know that's hard, uh, but do that. Like any student, and I I encourage that to students that I take to meetings now. Like everyone's super friendly. Uh, they want to talk to you. Uh, you know, so be more uh, forceful and approach uh, approach biologists and ask them what what work are they what are they doing in, in their job. You know, to it'll help them understand the career, uh, understand the professional a little bit better. And it you never know they might meet their future mentor. Yeah. Conference full of attendees that are that love fish. You know, they're they're going to yeah. talk to you about it. <laughs> oh yeah. Yep. All right. Well now. The tough part of the interview is over as we are down to the final five questions. This is a group of five questions that we ask each of the guests that come on the show. We always start simple with what is your favorite fish? So that's like asking uh, someone, what's your favorite Star Wars movie? It's hard to pick, ju pick just one. Um, you know, mine, I, it's definitely changed throughout my life. Um, you know, growing up, largemouth bass were clearly the fish that I was originally attracted to and I orig originally had a, a love for, you know, they, they fight really hard. They jump, they're very, it can be acro acrobatic. Um, and then, you know, now that I'm on the coast, I would, it would, it, it varies, but stripers, uh, you know, you can't be, uh, uh, catching a striped bass in, in this current against the tide, against the rivers. Um, very pretty fish. They're delicious. Uh, coastal stripers. They're, uh, about some of the best fish that I've ever eaten. Uh, so right now, Probably striped bass. All right. What is your favorite memory from your career so far? First time electrofishing. Uh, uh, it was with, I can't remember which lake it was. It was with Bob Robertson and Jeremy Price, District 1, Indiana DNR. Um, I was just amazed. I didn't, I was the worst netter in the world that day, that night. Um, I, I just, you know, I, uh, as an undergrad, we went out and watched somebody electrofish. It was daytime electrofishing with a tote barge, but I never did it myself. But standing up on the bow of the boat, on the cage, seeing all these fish just pop up. Uh, that, you know, if if I had any doubts, that was when I knew that I was in the right place. Like, that was the most exciting uh, excitement that I've ever felt, I think. Well, I have a very similar experience from my early career, so I can certainly vouch for that. Uh, what is your favorite dream job or dream location? So, uh, so be a professional angler. <laughs> Still, <laughs> uh, that's probably not going to happen. Uh, more reasonable, you know. You know, I, I think I'm doing what I what I've always wanted to do. Um, you know, I I wouldn't, I can't imagine not teaching. Um, so I would say I'd probably end the dream job. Um, I love the location, but I would not be opposed to moving somewhere uh, more tropical. <laughs> All right. If money is not an issue, what is one project you would like to work on? 
Yeah, so I've uh, been trying to get this project funded, um, you know, th this more understanding these striped bass movements a little bit better. Um, you know, I would love to uh, get some hydroacoustic tags and 50 to 100 uh, adult fish to really track the the localized movements, the daily movement patterns. Uh, but then in conjunction with that, uh, look at odorless microchemistry. Um, you know, if we put a tag in a fish, we can take a fin clip, we can tell if it's a wild or a stocked fish, and we can see where it's moving. Um, but where did it come from? We don't know. Um, you know, it, I would love to do get 50 to 100 odorless and try to match that chemical signature with some of the some of the different rivers where they might be coming from. Cape Fear, for example, there. Uh, uh, I think I can say this. Uh, out of the most recent uh, DNA samples that Jason sent in, one of them was identified as being a Cape Fear River fish out of Winyah Bay. First time documenting a Cape Fear River fish over there. Um, so there seems to be a lot more uh, movement between rivers, partially due to the ICW. It's a non-natural river, uh, non-natural connection. You know, before these stripers would stay in their own river, they're locally adapted to that river, um, but now they can move back and forth. So are they now uh, exchanging gen gene genetics between between these rivers? Um, so pair up some odorless microchemistry, one to look at these larger scale movements, but then also we could uh, look at how how much time are they spending in the fresh versus salt? You know, are they are they following the salt line as it's moving in and out? If they are following that salt line as sea level rises and that salt line moves for inland, that's going to start limiting the available habitat. For um, so lots of potential implications on just understanding some of these more large scale uh, movement patterns of uh, these coastal stripers in the PD. All right. If there was one point or principle that you could have programmed into everyone's head, what would it be? Don't get hung up on p-values and don't worry too much about getting it less than 0 0.05. Um, you know, that's always hammered into us as undergrads. Um, I think you were better served by thinking about uncertainty, uncertainty in the data, and how to minimize that uncertainty and the overall effects. So don't get hung up on p-values. All right. Well, that wraps it up. Jason, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. It was a pleasure hearing about you and all of your work. Okay. If people want to find out more information or to get a hold of you, how would they do that? Uh, so they can uh, reach out to me at uh, my email, jason.doll at fmarion.edu. Um, they can find me on social media, go to my GitHub page, just uh, Google, go to GitHub and search for my name. Uh, so yeah, uh, happy to uh, talk to any folks about fisheries and R and statistics. Well, I can promise you he'll be a great help if you have any R-related questions. If you would like to get a hold of me, you can find us on social media at fisheriespod or old-fashioned email feedback at thefisheriespodcast.com. I hope that you enjoyed this episode. You can download past, present, and future episodes on your favorite listening app or stream it from Spotify or thefisheriespodcast.com. And don't forget, you can help support the podcast with a monthly contribution through Patreon or buy some awesome Fisheries Podcast logo shirts hoodies, and stickers that are available on Teespring. I'm Preston. Thank you for listening to the Fisheries Podcast. And remember, do not get hung up on p-values. Thank you, Preston. Thank you. Thank you.